And all God's people said, amen. That's kind of weak. I think you're not awake yet. And all God's people said, amen. It is finished the immortal words, words of Christ from the cross, meaning that the work of salvation completed by his death and complemented by his re- resurrection. We know what Christ did to save us. Today, that is our topic. I guess you've noticed through the song service that we are looking at the cross. We are zooming in on Good Friday. And while we say it's Good Friday, we have to remember that for Christ, it was not a good day. And we want to begin today to discuss that in preparation for this Holy Week. I want you to take your Bible. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And let's go down to verse 39 and following. Luke 22, verse 39. He went out and he made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Years ago, a young man by the name of Guido von Liszt stood in St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, Switzerland, and he made a vow that when he became an adult that he was going to build a temple to the ancient Germanic gods. And he chose a symbol for this new religion. Instead of the cross, he chose a broken cross, better known as a swastika. He later formed a secret society with that as the symbol, and they would have their rituals from time to time that included things such as sexual perversion and medieval magic. It wasn't long before Liszt attracted a young follower in the city of Vienna. His name was Adolf Hitler, who organized the Nazis and chose as their symbol the broken cross or the swastika. It forced the German people into a choice. Will they follow, as they had traditionally done, the cross of Jesus Christ, or would they follow the broken cross? History is clear. They chose poorly and were brought to ruin. Today, the choice is still the same. Will you follow the cross or not? While so many today say so little about the cross, we must remember as a church of the living God that it remains a centerpiece of our faith. The Apostle Paul said it like this. He said, The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are saved, it is a message that unleashes the power of God. There's something about just the story of the cross that has the power of God embedded in it. We, as followers of Christ, do not depend on our wit. We do not depend on our wisdom. We do not depend on our knowledge to convince the world of who Christ is. We simply tell the story of the cross. And the apostle said the power is in the cross. As you study the life of Christ, 
You cannot help but notice at every phase of his life that the cross is somewhere in the distance. William Hunt captured this truth in his famous masterpiece entitled The Shadow of the Cross. He has Jesus as a young man in Joseph's carpenter shop, and they've been working all day, and the sun is setting in the western sky, and its rays are slanting in through the doorway where they're working. Jesus, tired from his toil, has stood up and he goes to stand in the doorway and there he stretches out his arms and those rays from the sun cast an image on the back wall of a man on a cross. That's Jesus. He came to die. For the sins of all humanity, he had to suffer. The cross was the work of Jesus. I read an interesting story during World War I. There was a visitation by the Prince of Wales at a London hospital. The soldiers who had been literally torn apart by Blitzkrieg had been brought into the London hospital, and he went down to visit them. He came upon one soldier whose, whose image was so marred that it was hard to even look upon him. And he did a strange thing. That prince bowed down, and he, he kissed the man, and he whispered these words. For me. He did this for me. Now, those are old words because those are the words of the prophet Isaiah. He wrote a long time ago that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. This is the story of the cross that Christ came, he died, he took our place, and the judgment of God was poured out in the most horrific way so that you you and I could have the forgiveness of sin and our eternity could be transformed. It is the story of the cross. I want today to walk through it again. I know it's not new, but I do know it should be ever new to us, especially during the season when we celebrate the resurrection because the cross is the prelude to the resurrection. I want to talk about the series of events that unfolded that last day of his life before his next life. I want you to think with me back to where it all began. After the Lord's Supper, as we read about a while ago, Jesus went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the garden, Jesus traveled from the northwest or from the southwest sector, pardon me, to the northeast sector of the city. There in the garden, there are four scenes that unfold. The very first scene is the scene of the agonizing Christ. If you were to zoom in on verse 44 in the text before you, it says, Being in great agony, he sweat as it were great drops of blood. We know that at this particular time, Christ has come to the place where he prayed often to his Father. But this moment, he is in agony. This word agony comes from the Greek agon. It means a contest or a battle. It literally means that at this moment, there was a fight that was going on for the plan of God. Some would say it was a fight between Satan and Jesus, as Satan is trying to thwart the plan of God and to get Jesus to abandon what God has for him. But I think that's giving the devil far too much credit. I don't think he knew that through the cross there would be the salvation of souls. I think the devil wanted Jesus on the cross. I think he wanted to strike God. He wanted to kill the Son of God. But there is a battle. 
Don't mistake it. The battle between the the flesh and the spirit, as Jesus, 100% man and 100% God, is battling with this hard thing that he knows he's about to face. He even prays to his father and says, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. Nevertheless, thy will be done. When Christ prays that prayer, We know that in that moment, the battle is won. But what I find interesting in the text, it says that he gave himself more fervently to prayer and that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. It's a very rare condition. It's called hematidrosis. It's according uh, according to the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's a condition where where your pores or, or any kind of of hole that's in your body, they fill with blood, and because of the intense stress of the moment, when you sweat, that blood is released through your pores. Christ is in condition right now that is very rare, but what it would indicate to us is that his sweat has become uh, the telltale sign of a fragile condition where his skin becomes tender and he becomes chilled in the night air. Next, you see the apathy of the disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, it tells us that Jesus rose three times from this kind of prayer, pouring out his heart to God. Three times he rose in prayer, and each of those times he went over to where his followers were, and they were asleep. Here, their Lord fighting the hardest battle that any being had ever fought in history, the battle for your redemption, and the best that we could do was sleep. We dismiss them by saying that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But we should say that the flesh is weak because the spirit is weak. They are apathetic. In the third scene, we see the arrest of Jesus. The arrest of Jesus. The temple guards, not the Roman guards, but the temple guards come to where Jesus is. They are led by the traitor Judas Iscariot. You know the story. When Judas appears there in the garden... He comes over to where Jesus is, and the Bible says that he kissed Jesus, to which Jesus whispered in his ear, Betrayest thou thy master with a kiss? The kiss was a prearranged sign. It was a say to the guards, Come and take Jesus. He's the one. And they did. They came, they seized him, they put him in shackles, they led him away like a common criminal, and they, they took him down so that he could be tried. At this point, you know the story, Peter stood to fight, but to be honest, the battle was already over at this point. When Jesus rose from prayer, it didn't matter what happened after that because it was a 100% commitment to your redemption and to mine. In the final scene in the garden, we see the disciples abandon Jesus. You know that there were 12. Of the 12, eight of them escaped into the darkness and no one knew what happened to him. We know that one, one ran into the darkness, but he was stripped of his clothes, and he ran off literally naked into the night. We know that one followed afar off. We know that one betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, and one, just one of the 12, followed close to Jesus and went into the judgment hall with him. That, of course, was the beloved John. What is interesting is when you read the story back at verse 33 in our text, they had just told Jesus that even if we have to die, we will not deny you. This is the garden. All of this has taken place under the shadow of night, 
and Jesus is now led away to the preliminary hearing at the house of Annas. It's here that we turn attention away from the garden to the courts. And Jesus appeared before two courts. The first court is the religious court. There we find Caiaphas, the high priest. He's presiding over this court. And there an accusation or an indictment is brought against Jesus. They have false witness after false witness. Finally, the only thing they can get on Jesus is that Jesus said that if you destroy the temple, that he'll raise it up in three days. We know he was talking about his body, but they thought he was talking about the temple. And so they indicted him for violence against the temple. From there, we have the interrogation. Caiaphas begins to ask Jesus questions. He asks him about his disciples. He asks him about his doctrine. He asks him about his deity, trying to force Jesus to commit perjury. He wanted Jesus to say that he was the Son of God. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 22, one of the things you find is that they ask directly, and Jesus answers directly, and he says that I am. I am the Son of God. It is that statement that led to their absolute loss of control, and he was accused of blasphemy. Blasphemy is punishable by death, meaning the Jews have to kill him because he has made himself equal to God. That injury to insult, they blindfolded Jesus. There in his weakened condition, they began to shove him around. They spit in his face, and they slapped him on the cheek, and they said to him, Prophesy thou Christ, who was it that smote thee? They continued, they continued to taunt him and to torture him, but they could not do anything more because they could not kill him. They had to send him to the Romans, so early the next morning, the Bible tells us they were sent to the second court, the Roman court, where he would see Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a weasel, so crooked he could sleep on a, on a corkscrew. He was a man who had all kinds of history with the Jews. It was bad, and he didn't need another black mark on his record. So he comes, and they bring the indictment. The indictment is simple. Even though they found him guilty of blasphemy, that's not what they said to Pilate. They said, he says he is a king. Obviously, a challenger to Roman authority. He said he's a king, and Pilate begins to examine him, and Pilate finds him innocent three times. He asks him about all of these things, and he said there's no cause of death in him. He sent him over to Herod. Herod examined Jesus. He wanted to see a miracle, no miracle forthcoming, but Herod said there's no cause of death. They bring him back another time, and Pilate says there's no reason to put him to death. Finally, finally, he makes the offer, the offer to release Barabbas or to release Jesus. And they said, let's have Barabbas. In this moment, the crowd is incited. The angry priests and scribes are calling for Jesus to be crucified. The mob is now with them, and they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says... What has he done? But in order to satisfy the people, the Bible says that Pilate succumbed to the pressure. He washed his hands as though he could. He washed his hands and he delivered Jesus to be crucified. Now, I want you to understand the story well. 
By this point in time, Jesus had been awake for well over 24 hours. Jesus had been forsaken by his apostles. He experienced agony in the garden of an unusual nature. He was buffeted and mocked in the Jewish court. He'd walked over three miles in this condition. And now the torture is really about to begin. In order to crucify, they always scourged. They always scourged. Some of you notice flogging, or we might use the contemporary word to say that he was whipped. Whenever the accused was scourged, the point was to, to, to bring that person to the point of death so that death on the cross would be short-lived. That was that he would have an appreciable amount of blood loss so that he would die fast. The scourging, the scourging was a professional way of torturing and intimidating all who would watch it. They had an upright post, about as tall as I am. The accused was stripped of his clothes. His hands were chained to the top of that post. His legs were, were spread out behind him. And two men called lictors would stand on either side. One would stand on the left and strike the right side of the body. And the one on the right would strike the left side of the body. The instrument of torture was called a flagrum. It was just a short stick. It had leather straps sewn into it, and in those leather straps, they had little bits of jagged metal and rough cut or rough sheep bone. The idea was simple, that they would embed the, the metal and the sheep bone in the flesh of the accused. When they would come down and strike the body from the opposite side, the goal was to strike and tear, strike and tear. At the start, it simply, it simply lacerated the flesh. It was like a meat tenderizer. But under the full force of those lictors, they literally tore away at the flesh of Jesus in such a way so as to leave dangling ribbons of flesh hanging from his back. It was not uncommon. Not uncommon that the whip would strike around the neck, around the shoulders, it would even put out teeth and eyes. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that the scourging of Jesus was particularly harsh, meaning that by the time they finished, he looked like a piece of meat on the backside. I've seen the movies. I've seen the pictures. Sometimes we have a trickle of blood on Christ. We have a little bruise on Christ. That is nowhere near the truth. His back is a a raw, bloody mess, and they have done it intentionally. Jesus was horribly disfigured. That's in accord with the prophet who said his visage none could look at, meaning that he was so disfigured that they couldn't even recognize him by the time he was finished. Then the mocking began again. After the scourge, they put his cloak on him, and they walked him out in front of the people. And they said, Behold your king. They took that blood-soaked robe off of his back, and then they said, he's a king. He needs a, he needs, he needs a robe, and they put a purple robe on him. He's a king, and he needs a scepter. They took a stick, and they put it in his hand, and, and he's a king, so he needs a crown. And they put a crown of thorns on his head, and the Bible says almost immediately with that, within putting that crown on his head, they took the stick from his hand, and they began to beat that crown down into his brow. And then they pushed him around and said, Behold your king. Behold your king. They stripped him of the purple robe, reopening those wounds, put his own robe back on him, and they lead him back into the back part of the judgment hall so that they can affix him to the cross. During, 
that day, during that period of time, they didn't use a cross like what most of you have hanging around your neck. That's like a small case T. They used a towel cross, which looks more like a capital T. The upright post, which is called a stipe, was already affixed in the ground waiting for the accused. Meaning before any of this happens, up on Golgotha, there's already three posts in the ground. They take the crossbeam, though, and they force the victim to carry his crossbeam. It weighs 75 to 125 pounds, rough cut wood. And they throw the crossbeam on the ground and throw Christ on top of it. As you can imagine, the rock, the dirt, fill those wounds in his back. And there they begin to affix him. The Romans were masters at torture. They used five to seven inch spikes. They, uh, they did not drive them through the palm because it would tear out under the weight of the body. They drove them through, through, his, through uh, his wrist, and there when they did that, it would always sever the median nerve, the median nerve. Of course, when that happens, that causes the body to contort and to jerk. As you can imagine, with every pound of that hammer, the body of Jesus would just twist and contort with pain. And then finally, they've got him affixed to the cross, to the cross beam. He's going to carry that. He's going to carry it all the way up the hill. But you know the story. He falls. He falls. Simon carries him up there. They finish affixing him to that crossbeam. They lift him nailed and put him on that stipe. And then they take one foot over the other and they run a spike through both legs, cutting, severing the plantar nerve. And there again, he is hanging on the cross with exposed nerves. Because of the weight of the body, because he's lost so much blood, he can't even he can't even stand up or he can't push up. He can't breathe. You know that seven times Jesus spoke from the cross. Seven times he had to drag his his body up that rough cut wood. Seven times he had to twist those nerves and he had to push on his feet and and he would drag himself up and he would whisper the things he had to say in excruciating pain. Till finally, at the third, the, the three o'clock in the afternoon, at the ninth hour of the day, that black hour of the judgment of God, Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? heartbeat of Jesus is broken. For the first time in eternity, God cannot look upon his son because the son of God is bearing your sin and he's bearing my sin. The Bible says later that he had a cry. He said, it is finished. And he yielded up his body to the father. And then he's dead. The king is dead. I remember what R.G. Lee used to say when he was talking about Naboth's murder, where is God? Is he blind that he cannot see? Is he deaf that he cannot hear? Is he lame that he cannot act? Where is God? I'll tell you where God is. God is in the shadow of that, looking down, saying, this is how much I love you. This is how much I hate your sin. This is what I was willing to pay for your redemption. This is it. This is the cross. 
It's my judgment of sin. And it's my expression of love that I would yield my son to die for you. Now you have to choose on the cross. There was a man on one side that looked at Jesus, railed against him, and said, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and save us. That's the cross of rejection. There was a man on the other cross that saw Jesus, knew he was a righteous man, and that man cried out and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That's the cross of reception. And everyone in this room has to make a decision. You're either going to reject the cross or you're going to accept the cross. But that decision is yours. It should be life transforming for you. Many of you have heard the story of Nicholas von Zinzendorf. When he was a young man, his parents sent him on a tour of Europe. He came to the city of Dusseldorf. And there he saw Domenico Fetti's famous masterpiece, Behold the Man. It's a picture of Christ as he's dying on the cross. And as, as Zinzendorf looked at it, he noticed a caption at the bottom, This is what I did for you. What have you done for me? If that's what Jesus did for you, then there's no sacrifice too great to make for him. What will you do with the cross? Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. This is an old story that you've heard many times. Christ died for our sins. Christ did not have to go to the cross. Christ chose to go to the cross. He chose to do that so that my sin debt could be paid fully, so that the judgment of God could be satisfied, so that I could be made righteous in him. God did that so that I could be saved. If you reject the cross, dear friend, why would God accept you when his son did all that for you? Today, you have to choose either to receive him or reject him. I know many in this room have already accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you rejoice when you look back at the cross. Maybe a tear should be there. But you rejoice in what Jesus did when Jesus died. The question becomes, this is what I did for you done for me what are you going to do with this Jesus it's possible that there's someone here today that has yet to come to faith you might have heard the story before but quite frankly you've ignored it you want to go to heaven but really you don't want to give God your life it just doesn't work that way there is a path to forgiveness it's that man on that middle cross the cross of redemption you will turn to him by faith. Dear friends, he will save you. He'll give you eternal life and a purpose for living right now. This is what I did for you. What will you do for me? In this time of invitation, if you're not a Christian, I plead with you, settle that issue today. Barry will be here at the front. I'll be up here. 
you need to receive Christ, you come and let us talk to you from the Word of God about how you must be saved. If you're already a believer in Jesus and you've been drifting, quite frankly, you've been ignoring the cross, treating it as though it didn't matter in your life, I want you to rededicate your life today. What have you done for me? Father and our God, we thank you for your word and its truth. That this age-old story has the power to transform eternity for, for everyone who will believe it. My prayer right now is that your people will celebrate on Good Friday because we know it was not good for you, but it was incredible for us. Thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.